Hi, welcome to this Physicians Weekly's podcast. My name is Dr. Rachel Giles. I'm your host for this podcast. And today we've got some great interviews as usual. This is Physicians Weekly. Welcome to episode 98. Today in this episode, we interview Professor Patrice Forget. He's the clinical chair in anesthesia at the University of Aberdeen in Scotland, the UK, about developments in safe pain management, as well as the best evidence-based use of opioids in the current landscape. Professor Forget is a recognized international expert on pain management, and he just published an overview last month in the journal The Lancet. This is, of course, a highly topical discussion for the current climate of opioid reduction. After Dr. Forget, we speak with our regular contributor, a board-certified radiologist and malpractice attorney who goes by the pseudonym Dr. Medlaw about dealing with another doctor's errors. Is the doctor who notices an error also legally liable for the worsening of a medical situation when they have not intervened? This is really a fascinating discussion, and I hadn't really considered all of these implications myself, so I really learned a lot. Enjoy listening. Thank you, Professor Fourget, for joining us today. Would you mind telling us a little bit about who you are and what your research interests are? Thank you very much for the invitation. Uh, my name is uh, Patrice Forger. I'm a professor of uh, anesthesiology and pain medicine in Aberdeen in the United Kingdom. I'm originally trained in Belgium. I come from Belgium. I've been working 10 years as a professor of uh, anesthesia and with a specific interest in perioperative pain management. And I'm also the chair of the Pain and Opioid After Surgery Research Group sponsored by the European Society of Anesthesiology of Intensive Care. And the aim of this group is simply to improve quality and safety of pain management. So I did want to talk to you today, and your name in English is Forget. And I think a lot of the times we forget to include guidelines about adequate pain management. Can you please talk to us about how that can be improved and, and what is the unmet need? Yes. So first of all, thank you very much indeed for the invitation, because that's clear that there is a very important need for improving quality and safety of pain management in general. And both are important, quality and safety. That means that definitely when we speak about the problems and the opportunities that we have with pain management, it's clear that first of all, we speak about pain and we speak about what's important for people living with pain. So then afterwards, there is, of course, the potential needs that that we may meet with offering an adequate pain treatment, but that first needs to be a patient-centered. And that's the first need. I think that clearly one really should be applicable to everybody is uh, clearly something that we've understood as not working well. So patient needs recognition and individualization, personalization is something that we need to work on. And for that, we're clearly experiencing a lack of data. So we need to gather better data to try to understand better what's required. And, and what kind of data are you referring to? Like patient reported outcomes or experiences? Yes, yes. And both, both indeed, because clearly with going in evidence-based medicine is uh, the definitive truth. But that means that evidence-based medicine is mostly based on evidence coming from clinical trials. Right. And that means that we can while gathering data coming from clinical trials, we can see what works in average in the average patient, which is partly useful for when we speak about efficacy trial to see what works in average. But that doesn't work very well to know for individual people what's really works. So the 
effectiveness in real life and then individualizing pain management. And that needs to be concretized in a shared decision process. So, yes. so that's why I say that patient reports to outcome measures are certainly important. That means in pain trials that can be pain scores, but mm -hmm. PREMS patient report experience measures are also very important to be sure that people have the control on their choices, that's obvious, but also as much as possible on the factors that are right. part of their uh, treatment. So PROMS and PREMS are both important. And in pain management, PREMS are not, surprisingly, are not very well uh, evidenced. When we look at the literature, we have mostly data about satisfaction in general, but not necessarily documenting well people experiences, opinions, attitudes, and then what may drive behaviors and what's really uh, important to them, simply what matters to, to them. So we need for that better data and that's for the evidence. So on the more scientific point of view, and then if we want later to translate that in better care, typically when we can speak about shared decision-making and how to adjust that for different people using different methods. That's why we need data, but then we need to really make that much more concrete. And it can be done with very simple techniques sometimes, just speaking about benefits, risks, alternatives, or the possibility not to prescribe anything and what are the advantages and the disadvantages of, of that. And finally, you just mentioned guidelines and there is an enormous need in guidelines because yeah. shared decision-making, patient-centered approach, personalization, sometimes also the fact that people's priorities might be different is of course very important. And then tailoring, adjusting treatment to people's needs could make it more qualitative, improved quality of pain management, and hopefully making it possible to apply better the principles of rational prescribing. So working on the prescription patterns, but also on the plan really with, with people and then making it allowing a people to think that it may make more sense for them. And then in processes like opiate stewardship and pinch stewardship program, it, it could become safer. So that's a long answer, but hopefully no. that is clear enough because there are multiple aspects. Yeah, there are very many variables involved there. And, and your specialty, as I understand it, is perioperative pain management. Is that correct? Is there anything unique to that, that particular situation that you can discuss? Yes, absolutely. If we, if we speak about perioperative pain management, that's a clear moment when many people come with their own life, their own experience, their own beliefs and their hopes just to go better uh, after a surgery, but the meaning of that is very different for different people. So definitely a plan should be tailored and much better tailored than just the same ratio pay for uh, everybody. So then we need to integrate in guidelines, personalized or at least individualized pain management. Again, share decision-making when people wants to have, have the control and to share the, the decision and also doing a plan on a longer term. So rational prescribing, is something that starts around surgery, but on the longer term, then speaking about opiates tapering. And as we know that opiate on the long term or, or even relatively rapidly on midterm, opiates um, are medications that don't work for a long period of time. People just develop tolerance and then the, medic the medication 
doesn't work as well as at the beginning. The right information should be shared with people at the start and to be sure that the plan makes sense for everybody because sometimes pain may last longer than the period of time when opiates work well. So we need to accompany much better people to be sure that uh, everybody feel secure or at least get the information at the right time to understand what happens. I see. And so I'm interested because you're a pain expert based in Europe. Could you perhaps reflect on what the opioid crisis is like from your perspective? I should say the opioid crisis in the United States is perhaps you have some unique perspectives there. Absolutely. So there are things that Europe can definitely teach to the United States. But first of all, how Europe uh, sees the United States, definitely there is a preconception from Europe that the United States is just a big homogeneous entity where everything happens more or less the same. And then clearly in the European literature, it's often described as a North American problem or problem happening in the United States as a whole. I think that we could learn much more from the heterogeneity of the United States, something that has been observed relatively homogeneously in the United States is the capacity to flag links between prescription patterns and the evolution of the problems linked with opiate prescriptions, I mean, uh, in terms of clinical outcomes. And chronologically, that has been clearly evidenced. It's not that clear, however, how we may solve that. But again, the heterogeneity in the United States may help to identify some clues, some sort of strategies that may work better than others. Uh, and also, unfortunately, what doesn't work well. So what Europe sees and is very interested in when uh, discussing data gathered in the United States is the fact that the US may be just five to 10 years earlier than Europe, uh, which is oversimplistic because Every country, every nation, every area, maybe every hospital may have different problems and uh, solutions. So just again, sp speaking about homogeneous entity is unfair, but definitely many good, good learnings. So that's why, yeah, looking to the United States may not only say what is to be done or not to be done, but maybe what we can learn to just improve quality and safety of pain management in Europe and not necessarily saying that it's better or it's worse. It's just different and happening probably at a different time. Right. And so do we work together at all, uh, the United States and Europe, in these bigger issues of pain management? And it's not something that's unique to either continent. How can we, we align our and harmonize our approaches? Yeah, that's, that's an interesting question because we definitely don't work enough together. There are many good points and excellent relationships. People can communicate, can exchange, can discuss research results relatively easily and probably easier than ever. Unfortunately, comparing directly data is very difficult. And there are many good reasons for that, including protection of privacy, data protection in general, regulatory problem, direct collaboration at a research level is a 
pretty much complicated or can be uh, complicated. So uh, that's that's something that we can improve. So improve the uh, quality of the research uh, collaboration. What could be also improved is the discussion between scientific societies and uh, professional societies. So when we speak about guideline development, we have much to learn from each other, not necessarily yes. to come with, with the same guidelines, but definitely to work better together. And one example of something that we can improve is the inclusion of patients and members of the public in when writing guidelines. That's something that's relatively recent from, yes. from the last five years. But the way to do that is still relatively different. And, and it's again something that should be done using different ways. And so again, we have much to learn uh, together and, and then to, to identify what works well or what could work better. Right. And so what are some of the hot topics in pain management in your particular area? What are some of those discussion points that people are very get excited about? So clearly we have seen during the last 10 years that pain-free surgery is an unrealistic goal. That was a big uh, disappointment. So we have now to understand much better what are the main determinants of pain, because pain is much more complex than, than it was. And then a big area of research is personalization of pain management and trying to understand really why pain is so difficult to tackle in average and then understanding and explaining better that the average patient doesn't exist and uh, understanding what would be useful for who. So that's a big area of research. Of course, when speaking about pain management, the usual way and what we've been taught to prescribe, which were the opiates for everybody, and knowing that it doesn't work well for everybody or it may have side effects, can be toxic or on a short term, can be for the digestive tract people may just vomit with uh, opiates or may sleep with opiates or may unfortunately be intoxicated with opiates and that can be life threatening. But other people fortunately benefit from the opiates and we have to protect the access to the opiates, which are of course also on the WHO list of essential medicine. And that's not that easy to try to manage that kind of risk of stigma. Uh, stigma linked to pain, but stigma linked to uh, opiate use, but constantly question the place of opiates. And that's definitely a hot topic, questioning the place of opiates and just, just identify where they use less. And there are unfortunately many, many places, uh, especially around surgery, many moments when we use enormous doses of opiates and there is no proven benefit from that. Right. So that's the constant question that we have to come with to be sure that when we use opiates, that's for a benefit. Thank you so much for your time today. Thank you. Thank you very much indeed. Physicians Weekly is back again with our regular contributor, Dr. Medlaw, a board-certified radiologist and medical malpractice attorney. This time, to discuss dealing with another doctor's errors. Dr. Medlaw, thank you for joining us today. Great to be here. When we think about malpractice issues, we usually think about a doctor dealing with their own errors. 
But what about when another doctor has made the error? Well, that's a real issue, and it's one that doctors often feel very uncomfortable dealing with because, you know, they want to be loyal to the profession. But the thing is, loyalty actually runs to the patient. So it's something that you have to deal with when it comes up. How does that work? Well, let's start when the doctor who made the error and the doctor who then notices the error are actually independent. Uh, basically, you know, a new patient comes to see you, and as you review their records or you examine them, you realize that their prior doctor made a mistake. In this situation, there's just no choice. You have a duty to your patient to inform them. You know, not revealing a relevant fact about their health, it breaches that duty. It makes you liable for your share of the damage. If not being informed, then harms them. So the patient can sue you along with the other doctors? Oh, yeah. Uh, you'd be liable for the worsening of the situation that occurs after you notice the error, but don't tell the patient. And by the way, you can also be sued by the other doctor. Really? Yeah, they can do what is called impleting. So even if the patient doesn't sue you, the other doctor can bring you into their malpractice case as a defendant who is liable to them for a share of the damages. So they would be demanding that you share in the judgment for your role in worsening the situation and thereby driving up the ultimate verdict or settlement? Exactly. And it would be successful because it was foreseeable to you. Remember, we always talk about foreseeability, that the patient staying uninformed would suffer an exacerbation of the condition. Uh, by the way, there's also a, a statute of limitations issue to consider. What is that? Well, if you actively conceal facts from your patient, you can keep the time running to sue you that might otherwise close. Now, discovery rules allow a patient to sue when they know or should have known about the malpractice. So when there is intentional concealing of a medical fact that could lead them to that discovery, the time to bring the suit is extended. And there's something else to also remember. There could be a separate case for what's called fraudulent concealment. And that is uh, different than medical malpractice. That's a variety of fraud. And in most jurisdictions, it's going to have a statute of limitations that's about three times longer than the one for medical malpractice. Would those cases be covered by malpractice insurance? Great question. The answer is no. Deliberately withholding the facts would be entirely intentional rather than negligent. So you'd have to bear the costs of your defense and any verdict or settlement against you on your own. So you do have to tell the patient, but can you present it in a way that is less risky to the other doctor? Well, bearing in mind again that your obligation is to the patient, not to the other doctor, you can do a tailored presentation within the limit that it doesn't impede the information actually going to the patient. Can you involve the other doctor in the informing process? Oh, sure. And that may be the optimal solution. Uh, if the matter is not an emergency, you can contact the other doctor and ask them to deal with it. But you can't consider that you're closed off then because maybe they won't want to tell or maybe they'll forget. You have to follow up to make sure that it's been addressed because it's foreseeable the other doctor may not do so. Remember, back to foreseeability. And only checking that actually discharges your duty. And by the way, don't just check with the other doctor, check with the patient. 
because again, you may deal with someone who may not want to reveal their error. Only in information from the patient will tell you that. Uh, now, there's a big caveat on this, though. You can't introduce any significant delay. Uh, it's not just because it's good medical practice to let someone know the facts as soon as possible. It's because if there's a lawsuit, you'll need to demonstrate that you did not stall the process long enough for harm from the original error to have really increased in a clinically significant way. So how long can you let it go for the other doctor to act? In a non-emergency setting, two weeks should be your cutoff. Um, if there's, you know, uh, things intervening, like the other doctor is away for a while or there's a holiday, uh, you can maybe go to a month as long as it's not something that's, you know, really growing. Um, but if you go over a month, you've gone too long. Stick around two weeks. What if the other doctor never follows through? Then you deal with the patient yourself. How should you phrase it? Well, if you feel it's appropriate, you can put the matter in context. You know, for example, you can emphasize that there might be alternate ways to diagnose or treat a medical issue. But the thing is, you know, don't be vague. Don't use euphemisms. The patient has to leave the discussion knowing what the error is, what its potential effect on their health is, and what steps they should now be taking. And document everything, right? Oh, absolutely. Any discussion with the patient and any contact with the other doctor goes in the record. Could the other doctor claim that you defamed them to the patient? Well, not successfully if you stick to the medical facts, since a true statement cannot be defamation. However, it's still prudent to protect yourself against a retaliatory lawsuit or board complaint, uh, particularly if the doctor on the other end of this era is a competitor. So even if you're really disgusted by the error or the other doctor's conduct, you need to use restraint and don't editorialize. You know, you want to be seen by any later reviewer or a later juror as, as being a professional, simply doing what was right, you know, not as someone with a personal grudge. Your goal is to show that you made sure that the patient was fully informed in a timely manner, and now understands the issues, you know, not to gripe about the other doctor. And, you know, seriously, if the matter is really egregious and you think that the other doctor is a present danger to patients, then you should report them to the state board. It's going to be, it's an obligation to do so under your license. But if it's not at that level, it's just a correctable error, then you don't want to note that's flaming and that, you know, that calls your own conduct and motivation into question. So this was when a patient starts seeing a new doctor. How about when the doctor is doing a follow-up, such as in radiology or pathology? Well, I can speak as a radiologist on this. Uh, the same rules on timeliness, transparency, and notification apply. Uh, you should initially contact the doctor who made the error, offer them the opportunity to issue an addendum to their own prior report, and to contact the referring doctor. If the other doctor agrees or even asks to read the subsequent study to place it in context, that can be okay. But again, you've got to verify that they actually did so and that they did so within the time frame to issue a report that the department requires. If you find out that they didn't do it promptly or they tried a little shenanigan and didn't reveal the prior error in their report 
or they didn't notify the referrer, then you have to do so. How about if you will be doing the report? Then your content has to reference the prior error. You know, simply issuing your own statement of the correct finding, well, that's fine. It, you know, sets future treatment onto the proper track. But if you do it as though the other report never existed, that still makes you liable for concealment of the facts. Uh, again, we're going back to the idea that the patient may have a cause of action against the other doctor. You interpose yourself to cover for them. You can be liable. So uh, you're in a setting in which comparison to prior studies is part of the standard of care. You start pretending that you never saw what you actually did see, it'll look like an independent breach on your part. So your report can't just say there's a 1.2 centimeter mass in the upper outer quadrant of the right breast. It must say a 1.2 centimeter mass is noted in the upper outer quadrant of the right breast. In retrospect, this is visualized on the study of whatever the date is. At that time, it measured 0.8 centimeters. Now, you can, of course, you know, include any mitigating matters in your report, such as the finding was less clear previously, or that the rate of change is minimal and, you know, not likely to be clinically significant, but you have to say it. And also make sure to put down that you contacted the referring doctor and discussed the results with them. It's not just enough to put it in the pipeline. How about when the doctor who made the error and the doctor who finds it share an association, like being partners or employees in the same group. Well, this is where the doctor's first thought may frankly be not wanting to be considered a troublemaker. But the fact remains that the patient's right to know about their own health trumps that. And that's, it begins and ends there. Can both concerns be accommodated? Yes, and actually in a way that makes you look like not a troublemaker, but a helper. You bring the matter to the senior member of the group and you have them deal with it. You present it with professional restraint and in the context that dealing with the issue limits potential liability for the group. Could you just deal with it with the other doctor? If it's minor, yes. Uh, but let's say you have become privy to a serious error by someone within the organization and you don't let the senior people know about it. And then that person goes around making the same or similar errors again, and the group gets slammed and has economic damages, you're going to be liable to the group because you didn't inform them of what you knew and allow them to take preventative action. What if they do not act? Then you have to contact the patient, you know, even if it costs you your position, because the welfare of the patient, and remember, the patient is the only one who still doesn't know about the error. That has to come first. Dr. Medlaw, thank you for joining us. And thanks for a chance to talk about this important topic. Thanks for listening to Physicians Weekly. Physicians Weekly is produced in collaboration with Medicom Medical Publishers and Physicians Weekly. 